from John's gospel. And here's how John records the story of resurrection. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Like he didn't love Peter, right? He only loved John. He's writing about himself. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Father, thank you for the glorious message of the resurrection. It brings hope to us in a hopeless culture. We thank you for this phenomenal message. No other religion has it. There is no other Savior. There is the only one by which we can, can be reconciled to you, Father. We thank you for the truth revealed here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Every preacher has preached on the finished work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus died, he cried with a loud voice, it is finished. The Pharisees and scribes hoped that he was finished. The demons of hell, oh, they just absolutely had a holiday because they believed and thought that Christ was finished and that the attempted work for our redemption, what Christ really came to do, had been thwarted by him being put to death. But Jesus did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. The work of atonement was finished. The sacrifice for sins was finished. The plan of salvation was finished. Sin, death, hell, and the grave were finished. And there remains no more sacrifice for sin, for Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice that that alone could wash away our sins. All that was necessary for man to be saved was finished. For Christ became sin for us and knew no sin, that he might be made the righteousness of God in him, that we get to be righteous because of Jesus' sinlessness. That's why salvation is Jesus plus nothing. It's not Jesus plus works, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus ritual. Salvation is by faith in Christ and Christ alone, period. Calvary speaks of the finished work of Christ. It culminated there. Calvary was forecast by a holy God long before all the pieces of our world were put together and became earth as we know it. The road that Jesus took on this earth was always to lead to the cross. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil were destructive, to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus headed to the cross in order to neutralize and nullify the work that the enemy had done against us. And it was on the cross that all the sins of all the people who have ever lived or who will ever live, they were all laid on the Son of God. Amazing when you think about this. 
that all the sins of humankind were laid on the one man, Christ Jesus. And Calvary speaks of the finished work of Christ. He completed it. He chose. He willingly laid down his life for us. It was finished. But the empty tomb speaks of the unfinished work of Christ. Had Jesus not been raised from the dead, you and I would still be living in our sins. But the finished work of Christ took place on the cross. The unfinished work of Christ begins at the empty tomb of Jesus on that first Easter. Now, in Bible days, it was the custom of a family member to close the eyes and kiss the cheek of their departed loved one. When Christ died, it fell to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to perform this task at the cross. Because it was these two men who loved Jesus so much, they petitioned Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus so they might prepare him for burial. And in my mind's eye, I can see them carrying a ladder to the cross. They climbed up the side of the cross and pulled his hands over the nails. It's unthinkable that they could ever pull those spikes out from the angle from which they were approaching them. And once the hands were loose, they let Jesus' body gently down into a sheet where they could wrap him and then removed his feet from the nail. And no doubt they prepared Jesus' body in the traditional fashion. The body must be washed, wrapped in white linen, with his hands folded over his chest. And there they closed his eyes and kissed his cheek and placed the napkin over his face. For three days, the Jewish leaders in Israel were in collaboration with the Roman government, scheming to make sure that nobody could steal the body of Jesus. No disciples could come and take his body out of the tomb. So they specifically conscripted a garrison of Roman soldiers to go place the stone in front of the opening where Jesus had been laid and seal it with the Roman seal. And for three days, the forces of darkness, the demons of hell, Satan himself, rejoiced in this supposed victory. But then came the day of all days. Then came the third day. The stone was rolled away by the angel of the Lord only to reveal that Jesus, in fact, had risen. Jesus had gotten up alive forevermore with victory over death, hell, and the grave. The Romans could not believe what had just happened to them. And the one who was and is and is to come arose, the mighty conqueror over death. And all of heaven must have broken into the highest praise because Jesus has risen from the dead. And now Mary was the first to come to the empty tomb. And she's kind of taken back to see that the stone has been rolled away. And so she runs to get Peter and John. And together, they return to the open tomb. And Peter steps in to see that the grave clothes were lying there. But notice something else that John mentions in his gospel. And he tells us that the napkin which was placed over the face of Jesus was not just tossed to the side along with the grave clothes. The Holy Spirit was very careful to point out that the napkin was neatly folded and placed at the head of the grave. Now, what's the significance of that napkin being neatly folded? Because Hebrew tradition gives us the specific answer as to why this happened the way it did. It's important that it was a folded napkin. The folded napkin had to do with the master and servant traditions in Israel. When the servant set the dinner table for the master, 
He arranged the table perfectly. The servant would then wait out of sight until the master finished his dinner. When the master finished eating, he would rise from the table, use the napkin to wipe his hands and his face, and then he would wad up the napkin and leave it on the table. The master having finished the meal, the servant could now come in, and it was okay for him to clear the table. The wadded up napkin meant, I'm done, I'm finished. But if the master got up from the table and carefully folded the napkin and laid it next to the plate, the servant knew it was a signal to him. The folded napkin meant, I'm not finished yet. The folded napkin meant that the master was coming back. After three days of uncertainty and despair after Christ's death, the confusion and the fear, they walk into the empty tomb and they see that folded napkin and they knew immediately, our Lord is not finished. He's coming back. The napkin was folded and on this Easter, that means several significant things for all of us today. The folded napkin speaks of us of the unfinished work of Christ. And the first aspect of that, Christ's work of redemption is unfinished. Jesus is still in the business of saving people. His work of redemption will continue until the day the last soul is saved and brought into the body of Christ and it's complete. Until Jesus fulfills his promise to return again, he will be redeeming men and women. The word redeem means to buy back. It's a reference to the practice of the buying of freedom for slaves. Jesus is in the business of freeing the captives. How are we held captive? Well, we might be free Americans, but without Christ, we are in bondage to sin. All around this world, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, people are being brought out of the bondage of sin, out of abuse, out of addictions, out of brokenness, hell, death itself, and they've become the adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached around the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. As long as Jesus tarries his return, there is hope for those whom Satan has held in bondage. Whether they are claimed by the bonds of drugs or alcohol, or rebellion for God's plan in their life, or unbelief in the work of Christ, Jesus can free them from the law of sin and death. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that believes that the main thing that Jesus gave us to do was to make disciples of all people. I'm grateful to belong to a church that does not leave it to the professionals, right? But where every single day people are tasked with the responsibility to bring other people to know Jesus. Every believer is responsible to share the story of the good news of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Every believer is challenged with that task. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter preached the gospel to 3,000 and 3,000, more than 3,000 and 3,000 people were born again. This proved that the work of redeeming people is going to continue after Jesus' resurrection. And we as believers are partners with Christ in the work of sharing the good news. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. You will speak about me. 
All you have to do is look around on your drive to church on any given Sunday morning, and you will see we've got a lot of work left to do in our community. All of us have family members, neighbors, business associates, classmates who are lost without Christ. And the work of redemption is unfinished. Christ's work of restoration is unfinished. When Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Christ, he instructed her to go and tell my disciples and Peter that I am risen. I am risen. Now, why was Peter specifically mentioned? Because at the time that Jesus was taken prisoner and put on trial, Peter denied the Lord and broke fellowship with Jesus. And the fact that Peter broke fellowship with Jesus shows it can happen to anybody. Peter was more surprised than anyone else that he could ever deny Christ because he had been the one making the great confession. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, my father. And Peter shows us that the strongest Christian needs to ever be vigilant about his or her relationship with the Lord. Paul instructed us to beware. If we think we stand, we might fall. Paul said he disciplined his body lest he preach to others and he himself should become a castaway. A castaway has nothing to do with Gilligan's Island. A castaway means no longer usable. It means you're put on a shelf. This tells us that a believer can get so disconnected from fellowship with Christ that he or she can break fellowship in such a way it makes it impossible for God to use him. So if the Bible says this about Peter and Paul, what makes you and I think it can't happen to us? Every pastor can think of scores of people who have fallen from fellowship and usefulness. People who used to be in leadership who now sit on the sidelines because of pride or prayerlessness. But thank God Jesus is still in the restoration business. It's unfinished work. That's why he specifically mentions Peter. And Jesus restored Peter to usefulness, who went on to become the great preacher on the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 people were born again. You might be here on Easter, and there was once a time in your life when you were active in God's work. But somehow, that's no longer true. Jesus can restore you to fellowship and usefulness if only you will return to him. And Jesus is calling you, who no longer love him passionately as you once did. And he offers to restore you to fellowship and usefulness that once was a part of your life. Now, if ever a church needed to be restored, it was the church at Laodicea. They were not cold, nor were they hot. They were just content, lukewarm. They did not passionately worship Jesus. They compartmentalized him like a lot of Western Christians do in our culture. This is what we do on Sunday. The rest of the week, I do what I want to do. No, he bleeds into every decision we make. He bleeds into all the things that we participate in. He cannot be compartmentalized. He is in every compartment, amen? But they marginalized him. But in love, Jesus said to them, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. So he makes this profound statement to this contented church. If you're like Peter was, if you only now follow the Lord from afar off, then open your heart to him. He'll restore you to fellowship and usefulness in his kingdom. And then Christ's work of resurrection is unfinished. 
The resurrection itself is unfinished. He, he was the first fruit. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Can't wait to hear his voice. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Jesus will not leave a single bone of a saint in the ground for the devil to gloat over. And this is a part of what is called the first fruits of the resurrection. I believe the Bible teaches us that the spirit of every born-again person goes to heaven at the moment of their death to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if this body is destroyed, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the body, natural body, goes to the earth from which it came, but the spirit ascends to the one who gave it, the one who created us, the one who wrote the book of our lives, out of whom we came, because he created who we are. And the believer is then given a spiritual body in which to dwell until the return of the Lord takes place. But when Christ descends for what is called the rapture, every believer who has died in the Lord will be resurrected, given a glorified body like that of the Lord Jesus. It's not conjecture. For Paul said in Philippians 3 that God will change our vile natural body into his own glorious body. He will transform us and give us bodies like Jesus had when he rose from the dead. It's a body similar to what he had pre-crucifixion, but an improved model. It was a body that could be recognized, yet could travel at the speed of thought. It was a body that could process and ingest food, yet it was a body that could pass through walls and step into a room without ever using the door. Paul said that beyond these hints, this is a mystery. It's enough for me to know that as just as Jesus had victory over death, hell, and the grave, so will we. That's the promise of the resurrection. Christ's work of rapture is unfinished. I never tire reading about, thinking about, preaching about the rapture of the church. We get the word from 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul says that right after the resurrection of those who have gone to be with the Lord, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. No more ills, no more pills, and no more bills. Did I hear an amen out there anywhere? The words caught up in the Greek mean to be carried away by a powerful force. Nothing like Lucas imagined or Obi-Wan could ever use. Can you imagine a force so powerful that every living believer in Jesus Christ on the planet is going to rise to meet Jesus like metal rises to a magnet? I remember going into a yard where they had all these old demolished relics of cars that were being pancaked and all kinds of things happening to them because my dad knew someone in there we had to go do some business with. And I remember this giant crane with this monstrous magnet on it. And my goodness, that thing would hover over one of those smashed up vehicles and it just pop. That thing would get lifted like a feather. We're all going to rise to meet the Lord in the air the same way. The Bible says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed into glorified versions. Some people think that we're all going to be about the age of 33 
the age Jesus was when he was resurrected. Is anybody looking forward to being 33 again? Amen? And the scripture teaches that several raptures have already occurred. The first rapture was the man Enoch in the book of Genesis. And the scripture says Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And he had this testimony, Enoch did, that he pleased God. I want that testimony. Enoch was walking along on earth with the Lord one day, having a conversation, and they had them regularly. And the Lord said to Enoch, you know, it's the end of the day, and we're closer to my house than yours, so why don't you just come home with me? And they looked for Enoch, but they could not find him because the Lord took him. The next rapture the Bible speaks of was in 2 Kings 2, that of Elijah the prophet. And while his servant Elisha was watching, Elijah was caught up by a chariot of fire and taken right into the presence of God, not seeing death. And they wanted to go look for him. The the prophets wanted, let's go find him. But Elisha, the successor, said, don't bother. He's gone. He's not coming back. He's gone to be with the Lord. The next rapture took place on a hill overlooking Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. I've stood on that mountain. It was from that place that Jesus ascended into heaven, raptured. It's that place that Jesus is going to return. And even the Jewish tour guides will tell you, this is the place he's coming back to. In Acts 1, it tells us that while the disciples were watching, Jesus began to rise, gravity being suspended for him. Listen to it. Now, when, they, when, they, when he had spoken these things, he had been giving them his final will and specific direction for what they were supposed to do. He had spoken these things while they watched. He was taken up. Can you imagine? He's talking to them, and all of a sudden, he begins to levitate off the ground, and he's going up into the sky, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That would be the glory cloud of the Lord. That would be the Shekinah glory of God that always accompanied God's presence, not a cloud like we see on a rainy day. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back the same way he left. But his work of rapture is not finished until the day he descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and we get carried away with him into the heavenlies. Christ's work. Redemption, restoration, rapture, still all unfinished work. His work of retribution is unfinished. When Christ returns in the rapture, it will only be for his people. The unbeliever, the unsaved, the scoffer, the lost are left behind. The whole world's not going with him. Only those who are the redeemed, who have accepted his gift of salvation. Revelations chapter 6 through 19 reveal that this will be seven years of tribulation. Following the catching away of the bride, seven years of hell on earth. Christ the Lamb will pour out the wrath of God on an unbelieving and scoffing world that lifts its fist and says, we will not have you rule over us. We're going to do it our way, not your way. And every person who has rejected Christ will be forced to take the mark of the beast, known as the Antichrist, which simply means you will do no business unless you accept that mark. 
He will arise during this time of tribulation. Judgment after judgment will fall. Mountains will be removed from their places and cast into the sea. We think we've got climate issues now. Never seen anything like what's about to happen. Thermonuclear war, natural disasters, going to destroy Earth's ecology. Jesus said this time of tribulation will be such as never been known or ever will be known again. In one stroke, over one-third of the Earth's population will be killed at once. It says it in the book of Revelation, at one time. The sun becomes so hot that human flesh begins to boil. This is the day of God's wrath. The bottomless pit will be opened, and demons so powerful and so evil that God has not allowed them to be loosed will now be loosed during this time, the tribulation, to torture the minds and bodies of men. Jesus said the sun then would be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, and stars would fall from the heavens. In this day of grace, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does anybody believe that today or need that? Amen? And this God is rich in mercy in this day that we're living in. Amen? He offers us mercy, forgiveness, and grace. We've still got a window that's open for redemption. Have you ever asked God for mercy? Have you ever just simply, I'm sure there's somebody in this room today, you've never consciously asked God, have mercy on me. Like one of the men crucified alongside of Jesus who looked over at Jesus knowing who he was and said, remember me. Remember me. Don't forgive me. And Jesus hears that kind of a prayer and immediately responds to it. And just as he promises salvation for those who receive it, he also promises retribution to those who reject it. There will be justice on this planet. For centuries on end, there have been those who have insulted the Holy Spirit, have trampled under their feet the blood of Jesus Christ, who have rejected every offer of salvation. And now there will come a time of justice and retribution when God is going to balance the scales because he is absolutely 100% fair and just. The famous atheist used to give lectures. He would stand in front of auditoriums full of people, and just as he began his lecture on there is no God, he would take out his watch and say, if there's a God, let him strike me dead in the next 30 seconds. And people would sit in anticipation that the next 30 seconds would go by. But then he, he, you know, he, he would assert after the 30 seconds, I told you, see, I told you there is no God. But one time during one of his presentations that God does not exist, a Christian man in the audience stood up and said, but by the way, does this man think he can exhaust the patience and mercy of God in 30 seconds? But one day the patience of God will be exhausted. God will say it's enough. And just as he destroyed all the world by water during the flood of Noah's day, this time he will destroy the world by fire on that final day. His work of retribution is unfinished. It's still just ahead of us. And then Christ's work of reclamation is not finished. In our time, God gave the enemy, Lucifer, now called Satan, certain latitudes on this planet. Because he tempted man and man took the bait and fell, 
now he has authority over human beings in terms of their final destination. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. And until we're released from that authority by the blood of Jesus, we're all held captive by him. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has usurped the claim of God on this planet and said, no, they sinned. I now have authority over them. But the day is coming when Satan's time is over. And the Bible calls this the day of the Lord. Look out for this day. When the armies of Antichrist have gathered together in the Valley of Armageddon to fight against the Lord and his people, Revelation 19 says, Jesus will return bodily in power and in glory and on his vesture and on his thigh. The names are written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, faithful and true. And the Antichrist and the false prophet who have had their way on this planet for seven years will be cast alive, it says, into the lake of fire. Satan himself will be bound and tossed into a bottomless pit while Jesus rules and reigns on planet earth for 1,000 years of glory. And today on this Easter Sunday, with the world around us in chaos, with a world going up in flames, anybody, anybody here seeing what I'm seeing, one might ask, what in the world is going on? What's happening on our planet? What's going on in these corners of the world? The world's on fire. I can tell you the answer. The world is coming back to Jesus. It was made by him. It was created for him. And the time is coming when God will put all things under his feet. Here's how he describes it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. God came in human form. He became a man to relate to us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, all will, will do that willingly and easily. I'm glad I chose to do it here and now. Then one day have no other choice but to fall on my knees and say, you are who you said you are. This is my Father's world. And Jesus shall reclaim this world because it's rightfully his. The knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. His name will rule on this entire planet. Wolves will live with lambs. Leopards, Isaiah said, will lie down with goats. Calves, young lions, and year old lambs will be together, and little children will lead them. You see, the curse of sin that we brought on ourselves 
and continue to bring on ourselves by making choices that are anti the kingdom of God, against the will of God, bring the curse to bear on this planet. And everything on it has been affected by it, from the vegetation that grows to the animal kingdom itself, until they're snarling, out-of-control beasts that look to devour one another. But Isaiah said, when finally God's unfinished task of reclaiming this planet is done, wolves will live with the lambs, leopards will lie down with the goats, calves, young lions, and young year old lambs will be together, and little children, they can go play with them out in the parks because they will be harmless once the curse is lifted. So that napkin in the tomb on that first Easter was neatly folded by Jesus himself because the master is not yet finished. He will be back. You see, Arnold stole that line from Jesus. Jesus said it first. I will be back. Can anybody give thanks to the Lord in this place? Amen. Praise God. Let's stand. Let's honor the Lord. Let's bless him and thank him. And everybody just hold steady for a few more moments.